0: You are jumping on a moving train. We have been going through the book of Genesis. It's not a fast moving train, but it's a moving train. And, uh, And so I don't have time to get you caught up. So I'm hoping you have a Bible at home. If you do, go home this week. You have all week long. Read the first 28 chapters of Genesis. You'll be caught up for next week, okay? Um, If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to have one, all you have to do is come see anyone you saw on the platform today, and they will see to it that you get a free Bible. Just come to us and let us know if you need a Bible, we can get you one, okay? But we're going to get going because we're in chapter 29 now of Genesis. We've been looking at the life of a guy named Jacob, and if you remember where we left off last week, Jacob has a serious dilemma. Jacob is a very, 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 very rich guy, except he has no money. He's got uh, the inheritance. He has the legal right to his father's estate. Only problem is his father won't die. His father has given him the blessing, but at this point, his father is going to live another 40 years or so. And so, He is in danger. His brother is mad at him for good reason, and his brother is threatening to kill him. And so his parents say, hey, get out of town. Get out of town tonight. There's no time to pack. There's no time to mess around. Head east and get out of town. Run for your life. Your brother's trying to kill you. And by the way, as long as you're going east, go all the way to your uncle's land And he lives in a place called Haran. If you go northeast, you can get there. And when you get there, find a wife, for crying out loud. You're a million years old. You've never been on a date. It is time for you to find a wife. So when you get to the land of your your ancestors, I want you to find a wife. Look for this guy. His name is Laban. He's your uncle, and uh, he's going to provide a wife for you. So, we find Jacob on the road. He is completely by himself. His entire life, he has lived with servants, When he was a kid, he had nannies and he had butlers and he had maids and he had all these people who took care of him. He has had that his whole life. He is born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He has never done a lick of work that we know of in his whole life. The only thing we've ever seen him do is make some food in the kitchen. Other than that, that's a big day for him. He has just been served his whole life. But now he is on the road. The only thing he has with him is a stick in his hand. He brought his staff with him. He has no map. Now, I say no map for the benefit of those of you old enough to know what a map is, okay? (laughs) Let me, for the younger ones, let me say he has no GPS. He has no iPhone, right? He has no way to know where he's going. He just starts heading northeast, he doesn't know how far it is. There are not highways. There are not off ramps. There are not signs that say 231 miles to Uncle Laban's. There's just go northeast. And when, and when you come to towns, ask them if they know Laban. And if they say no, keep going. And so he is on his own completely he has messed up his life. He's supposed to be blessed. He's supposed to be rich. But right now he is dirt poor and he has nothing. This is not what he had in mind when he bought the birthright. This is not what he had in mind when he stole the blessing. He thought it was going to be different. But now his life's in danger. His brother's chasing him. He's got nothing but his staff in his hand. But he does finally get some encouragement. We saw this last week, sleeping out under the stars with a rock for a pillow, and he has a dream where God appears to him. And God reminds him of the promises that have been passed down to him from his grandfather and his father. And God promises that he will be with them and he will make him a great nation and he will give him a family. So he awakes and basically says, We'll see. We'll see how God does. We'll see if God takes care of me. He has no way to feed himself. He has no way to take care of himself. He says, we'll see if God takes care of me. If God feeds me, if God clothes me, if God protects me, and if God brings me back safely to my homeland, then I will make him my God, okay? But he wakes up a little bit encouraged because God has told him, you are gonna have a family. So now he's off to find a wife and he thinks maybe he's gonna find one. Um, and, And here's the thing, though. He's looking for an uncle he's never met in a land he's never been to. He doesn't even know whether that uncle is still alive. Apparently, the uncle is not on Facebook. He's not on Instagram. There's no way of seeing what's going on with the family that lives far away. And he doesn't even know for sure if this uncle is still alive, But he's got no choice, he's running anyway, he might as well be heading to his uncle's. I say he's running, he's actually walking. Just so you don't get it wrong, he's not on horseback, he's not riding a camel or a donkey or anything like that. He is walking. And just so you understand, the difference from where he starts in Beersheba, where his family is, to where his uncle Laban lives, is about 500 miles, okay? So if you're, if you're having a hard time wrapping your mind around that, that's basically from here to Salt Lake City. He's got to walk that distance. And he's, it's going to take him, if he walks every sunlit hour of the day and he keeps a really good pace and he doesn't get sick and nothing slows him down and he has no problems along the way, it's going to take him at least three weeks to walk that distance. So this is a serious journey. Now, we pick up the story in Genesis 29. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open it up. Genesis 29, I'm going to start in verse 1, and you just uh, join me and read along. Uh, then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. He looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. For from that well they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large." When all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. All right? So he's been on the road for three or four weeks. He looks up and he sees evidence of a well. That's always a good thing because he's traveling, he needs water right? He sees the well, but better yet, he sees sheep around the well with shepherds. What that means is there must be civilization nearby. The shepherds come to this well to water the sheep, so he gets to where these guys are, and he greets them, right? And look what he says, verse four. Uh, Jacob said to them, my brothers, where are you from? And they said, we're from Haran. He said to them, Haran? I'm going to Haran. He says, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. And he said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. Okay, just so you understand what's happening. This day is getting better and better and better, right? First he sees a well, then he sees sheep with shepherds, then he finds out he's close to Haran. His uncle is alive, his uncle is well, they know him, they could take him to him. Oh, and by the way, you see that gorgeous blonde coming up? That's his daughter, right? You go, you're reading into that, Pastor, it's typical male, right? Right? No, it says later she's gorgeous. It just doesn't say the blonde part. That's I added that because of my wife. <laughs> but, but it says, it says that she, she's this beautiful girl and she's coming. Now, now, if you're a single guy and here comes this beautiful girl, this is great news for you, right? Especially, why is he there? What is he looking for? A wife! Oh my gosh, find a wife from among your mother's relatives. This is a cousin, back to the Arkansas, Kentucky thing. This is a cousin, right? But that's who you're supposed to marry. And so he sees this beautiful girl coming, and to make it 10 times better, like hitting the lottery twice in one day, she's got sheep. Some of you guys are looking at me like, that's not a turn on at all. (laughs) If you understood sheep in that culture, it would be. Let me put it in today's terms. He looked and he saw the daughter of Laban and she was beautiful and she was driving a convertible Mercedes. (laughs) Sheep are money in that culture. All of a sudden, he realizes, hey, Uncle Laban's got cash. He's got a beautiful girl, and he's got money. I think maybe God does exist, right? Now, that's really what he's thinking, because remember his dream? He's not sure what to think about God at all. He hasn't come into a relationship with God yet, but he sees the sheep, this is a good sign, and he's trying to figure out now, how can I get her to pay attention to me? Look at verse seven. He said, now she's still in the distance, right? He said, behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go pasture them. In other words, hey, you shepherds, maybe now would be a good time for you to leave. That's what he said to them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered and they roll the stone from the mouth of the well, then we water the sheep. In other words, don't tell us our business. We know what we're doing. We're here waiting for all the other shepherds to get here so that we can uh, you know, c- uncover the well at the same time, and then we can water all the sheep. What he's thinking is, I got to get rid of the competition, this girl is coming, right? Remember, he has been on the road for three weeks. What does he smell like? And, he, and these guys are there, and he wants them out of there. But they're like, no, we're going to stay. And as they're having this conversation, it doesn't matter because she arrives. Look at verse 9. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, see, he likes a sheep better than the girl. Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that, she, and that he was Rebecca's son, and she ran and told her father. Okay, this is kind of weird. He's trying to make a good impression. He tries to get those guys to leave. They don't leave. Now he's got to find another way to make a good impression. So what does he do? He, he decides to show off. He looks for the heaviest thing he can find, that stone that is on the well, and he's like, watch this. Braah! And he pushes the stone off the well and he just kind of stands up and does this. You know his back's killing him. You know he broke a fingernail and he's gonna have to get a manicure. But he's looking all tough. Look what I can do, right? And then to go further, he waters the sheep for her. This is the opposite of what happened with Rebecca, right? Remember, with Rebecca, they had her water the camels. In this case, he says, listen, you know what? You should sit down in the shade and have a lemonade. I'm going to take care of this for you. He is pouring on the charm, okay? And who can blame him? Finally, he kisses her. Now, you may be looking at this going, what? Dude, that is very forward, right? He kisses her. Now, in that culture, a kiss was a greeting that basically meant we're at peace. It didn't, mean, it, didn't, it didn't mean anything romantic in that context. And so he kisses her as a way of greeting her. And then he says, listen, I'm your relative. You know, uh, I, I'm here to see your dad. And, uh, you know, your aunt is my mother and all that kind of stuff. And then, so he's doing great. He shows off. She likes that. He waters the sheep. She likes that. He kisses her. She doesn't slap him, right? This is going pretty well. And then he blows the whole thing and says in verse 11, then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. Now, now, guys, I'm going to give you a hint. I've been out of the dating game for a while, but this much I know. Um, it's okay for men to cry, but not on the first date, okay? It's right in the manual on christianmingle.com. Don't, don't bust out crying on the first date. Girls, except she dug it. She was like, oh, he has a sensitive side, right? And, and so this is just going perfect. He is overcome with emotion, because he wasn't sure any of this was ever going to happen. And now he can see God's hand in this, and he's starting to wake up and realize God is doing this. And it didn't scare her away, apparently, because she runs to get her dad and says, Dad, I have a guy I want you to meet, right? And as you know, that means she likes the guy. And dad's probably going to hate the guy, right? But that's what it means. And so verse 13, let's pick it up. So when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him. See, there's another kiss. And brought him to his house. And he related to Laban all these things. Laban said to him, Surely you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. "'Then Laban said to Jacob, "'Because you're my relative, "'should you therefore serve me for nothing? "'Tell me, what shall your wages be?' "'This guy, Laban, is smart,' right?' He basically says, look, you've been here for about a month. I notice you keep helping out around here. It's not fair for me to take advantage of you like this. So let's work out a wage. So why don't you tell me what your wages should be? Now, remember, this is a guy with a huge trust fund and nothing in his wallet, right? And so he could use some wages. And so they both put their bargaining hats on. And they sit down at the table to bargain. And here's what they come up with. Look at verse uh, 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than to give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Ah, <laughs> Seemed like just a few days. He loved her so much. He didn't mind. Isn't this cool? Isn't it nice to see Jacob do some work, right? <laughs> Well, the, only, the heaviest thing we've seen him lift so far is a spatula before that stone. But now he's, he's working, and he's going to work for seven years, and the, those seven years go by in no time. Why? Because he is madly in love with this girl. And don't forget, I know it's so weird, you can't get the picture in your head, but he's pushing 100, you guys, okay? It's time for him to get married. And so he has been waiting his whole life for this, And he is now excited. So those seven years go by, he works hard. But here's where we're going to slow down a little bit. Because we've just been introduced to Laban's daughters who turn out to be very important characters in the story. And so I want us to stop and get to know them a little bit because we only get these few verses of introduction for these young ladies. But these few verses tell us a lot. The older one is named Leah or Leah depending on how you want to pronounce it. But since we already have a Chewbacca in the story, I'm going with Leah, okay? (laughs) David laughed. You got to wait for the New Testament before you meet Luke. He's coming too, but... (laughs) Gee, come on, help a guy out. Okay, so her name is Leah. And... The younger sister is named Rachel, and it gives us these verses and it contrasts these two girls for us, okay? Leah's name, the name Leah, means cow. And the name Rachel means lamb. Or or maybe you, means female sheep. And so already from their names you get a sense, right? and verse 17 describes Leah to us, and and all that it can say about her is Leah's eyes are weak. Leah has weak eyes, or maybe your Bible says dull eyes, or if you have a paraphrase, it might say, uh, um, Leah was hard to look upon, or Leah was hard on the eyes, okay? It's really hard to translate. We don't know exactly what it meant, but we know this. It was not a compliment, okay? Basically, there are two girls. Rachel is drop-dead gorgeous, and Leah is unusually homely. That's what we know. Um, And and if you will picture in that society, for the most part, it's still true today in this part of the world, the women wear full coverings, and often all you see is their eyes in public, right? So when it talks about her eyes being dull, it could be something as simple as, you know, there was just no sparkle in her eye, or it could be that, that her face was really messed up. And we don't know exactly what it means but it's clearly a contrast from her sister Rachel who was beautiful in form and face. And to make a comment in this culture that a woman was beautiful in form and face, in a culture in which they would wear something like burqas and you would have no idea what her form was like, is is to really highly compliment her beauty. In other words, one of these girls is in the Miss America contest And the other girl can't get a date. And they're sisters. So you can already imagine what it's like to be the older sister of Miss Teen Haran, right? Every time the phone rings, it's for Rachel. Every time a guy comes up to talk to Leah, it's to get Rachel's phone number. That's what's going on in Leah's life. This is how she's always lived. And that brings up a topic that we don't usually talk about in church even though it's just a well-known topic. It's just rude. So we don't talk about it in church. We just don't even talk about it in public. But we're going to talk about it because the scripture brings it to light here. It's not a minor issue that these girls look so different. So here's, here's the fact. Ladies, Only about 4% of you are beautiful. That's not my opinion, so don't write letters to me. (laughs) That's your opinion, ladies. If you remember a year or two ago, um, Dove Beauty Products did that whole um, Dove Real Beauty campaign. If you remember, it was commercials and online. And it was it was showing women of all different shapes and sizes in different parts of the world. And, and uh, as part of Dove's Real Beauty campaign, they did an international worldwide survey of women and asked them a bunch of questions. And one of the questions was simply, Do you consider yourself beautiful? And 4% said yes. What that means is the other 96% of you have bought the lie. See, in our culture, not to mention all of the other cultures, but we can speak of our culture In our culture, we are constantly surrounded by some Hollywood description of what beauty is, right? Or some Madison Avenue magazine cover description of what beauty is. And every time we go to the checkout stand in the grocery store, there's a rack of magazines that tell us through pictures and words what beauty is, right? And every female has to be bombarded with this kind of stuff all the time, whether it's commercials or ads or. TV stars or or pop stars or whatever, and and we're constantly told, if you don't look like this, if you don't look like this, if you don't look like this, you don't look good enough. And so we live in a society where there's a standard of beauty that most of you know in your heart of hearts you will never, ever meet. Now, I don't know what the definition of beauty was in Haran 4,000 years ago. But whatever it was, Rachel had it and Leah didn't and they both knew it because the definition of beauty is not objective, right? It changes from person to person, from time to time, from culture to culture. Some cultures have seen that the bigger a woman is, the more beautiful she is. And and that seems so strange to us in our culture where everybody is trying to get thinner, thinner, thinner all the time. But just look at Renaissance paintings and look at the women in the paintings in the Renaissance, and they are all big women. That's the standard of beauty at that time in Europe. Uh, In some cultures, beauty is determined by the length of one's neck. And so, in many places, in a few places, what they do is when a girl turns about five, they begin putting coils on her neck, like a necklace, that pushes her chin up, pushes her entire skull up, elongates her neck, so that by the time she's 25 or 30 years old, she can have a neck that's two or three times as long as her original neck, and the longer your neck is, the more beautiful you are. And in some cultures, it's about the size of your earlobes. If you get some big old earlobes, you are gorgeous. In other cultures, it's about stretching the lips. If we can get the lips to stretch as far as possible. And and there's... A popular surgery today where women have their lips injected in this culture, right? And the idea is that if you can get your lips to be a certain shape, a certain size, that's beauty. For others, it's about what size swimsuit you wear. For for others, it's about what size shoe you wear. I never understood this. Why do women lie about their shoe size? Everybody is a size six. Are you kidding me? I'm, I'm like, whatever, whatever floats your boat, I don't get it. But my point should be well taken by now. Guys, whatever we have been told is beautiful is what some other person made up and sold to us. And we sit here and I say we when I'm talking primarily to the ladies in the room. Ladies, you sit here and you've, you judge your beauty based on comparison to those those fake pictures of fake people who don't even really exist and you think, I'm not beautiful, I don't measure up, I'm not good enough and it hurts your self-esteem and it changes the way you carry yourself and all of that kind of stuff. All the while, God says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, you are his masterpiece. And, and you gotta forgive me for just running off on this tangent, but I have two daughters and I have two, three they keep coming. Three granddaughters. (laughs) And by God, this has to change. We, We have got to stop convincing women that somehow their worth is tied into some view of beauty that none of them ever, ever even thinks they could live up to. God says, you're a masterpiece. Whatever the definition of beauty was in that culture, Rachel had it, Leah didn't have it, and everybody knew it. And so Jacob offered to work for Rachel, even though she was the younger sister. And Laban took her up on the offer, took him up on the offer, and he got seven years of labor, right? Because women in that culture were property, Very difficult for us to even wrap our minds around. As far as we still have to go in the equality discussion in this culture, we've come a long way compared to where they were. Women were not very valuable property. You know, land was valuable, clothing was valuable, animals were valuable, and women were throw-ins. And women had no rights and women had no voice and women didn't determine who they would marry. That was a deal that was worked out between two men and a price was exchanged. They called it a dowry, but you bought a wife and you, and you bargained with her dad for the price and he needed to get the best price he could get because you only have so many daughters. And Jacob didn't have any money and he didn't have an ATM card and, and he didn't have Venmo, and he had no way to pay. So he gave him seven years' labor. And he made him wait seven years. And we don't know why. I have a hunch why. I think that he figured in those seven years, he would be able to marry off Leah. Seven years go by. Seems like a couple of days, right? Pick it up in verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, I love this, this cracks me up. Every guy in the room will go, yeah, I get this. And the women will be like, oh my goodness. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife for my time is completed that I may go into her, okay? Now, if if you haven't been a Bible reader for very long, let me just translate that. Hey, dude, time is up. I wanna sleep with your daughter tonight. That's what he's saying, okay? And, And he's just being forward. And the dad's like, well, I guess you, you worked seven years, so okay. So um, verse 22, Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Now in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him, and Jacob went in to her. Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. Did you notice? It wasn't Rachel, it was Leah. He brought Leah to, her, to him in the night, Verse 25, so it came about in the morning that behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? If you're a Leah fan, this is just getting worse and worse, isn't it? And, and it cracks me up, right? So obviously there's trickery afoot. And you say, how in the world does this happen? Remember, the women are completely veiled, and they're veiled certainly for the wedding. And don't think of a wedding the way you've been to weddings in our culture. In this culture, the deal would be made, they would have a seven day long feast that was a big party, right? Hence the phrase wedding party. And they would gather everybody together and and basically at the beginning of that seven days, the, the father of the bride would bring the bride to the groom. And they would consummate the marriage while everybody partied. There was a lot of alcohol flowing. The women were veiled. It is dark. And you have this nervous bride, and she's brought in, and he doesn't know what happened until the morning light hits her face, and he rolls over, and he sees weak eyes. And he freaks and I find it interesting that his line is, how could you deceive me? Really, Jacob is asking this question, right? Can you picture him? He jumps up. He's in just his boxers. He runs across the camp to Laban's tent, and he starts screaming, what have you done to me? What have you done to me? Again, Leah is hearing all this, right? And you think to yourself, how in the world did the girls do this? right? They had no voice. They had no rights. When dad says, do it, you do it. I don't know if he locked Rachel in a closet somewhere. I don't know how he kept them from uh, getting the news. But Leah, maybe she was afraid she'd never get married. I don't know. But one way or another, here's what we do know. As of that morning, Leah and Jacob are legally married. And there's no getting out of it. That's the situation. Now, they go back to the bargaining table, verse 26. Uh, But Laban said, it's not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Again, my hunch is he figured he'd have her married by then. But he didn't. And it would have been a shame on his family. She would have never gotten married if her younger sister had gotten married first. Verse 27, complete the week for this one and we will give you the other one also for the service which you shall serve with me for another seven years. Remember I said the festival, the feast is a week long. He basically says, look, we have these guests here. Let's not make a scene. Let's not embarrass everybody. Let's just continue this this party for the week. And when the week is up, I will give you Rachel and you will owe me seven more years. And that's what he agrees to. You see this family pattern developing? Jacob now has two wives. And he only loved one of them. I mean, oh, he, he slept with them both. The unloved one turned out to be the most fertile one. So she served a purpose. But she knew that he loved Rachel more than he loved her. But Jacob came from a family with a history of this kind of thing. They played favorites in his family all the time, right? Abraham had two women, if you remember, and two sons. And everybody knew which woman was the favorite, and everybody knew which son was the favorite. And in Isaac's family, he had two sons. One was mama's favorite, one was daddy's favorite. Everybody knew who the favorites were and you had no problem playing favorites. Do you see what happens in families when we allow dysfunction and unhealthy things to exist in our families? They get passed down to our children. And a lot of times as adults, we can look in the mirror and go, I'm willing to live with it. Are you willing for your family to live with it? Let me ask you men, Are you willing for your daughter to marry a guy who will treat her exactly the way you treat her mother? We pass these things down. And we have this generational dysfunction now in this family. Verse 31. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Again, the pattern Every one of these generations has had a barren wife. She's barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. The word Reuben, the name Reuben, has a very specific meaning. It means, look, a son. That's his name, look, a son. Do Do you understand why she named him that? Hey, look, I have some value. Hey, look, I gave you a son. She didn't give you a son. I, look look what I gave you. Now maybe you'll love me. But he didn't love her. Verse 33. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon, she conceived again and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, he was named Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Leah is craving love, but all of her efforts don't bring it. Jacob is only too happy to keep sleeping with her because he's a guy. And she is serving a purpose. She's giving him sons. She's spicing up his sex life. And she is, is making things better around the camp, but she is not getting his heart. Single ladies, please pay attention to this because we guys are really good at this game don't be confused into thinking that because he wants to sleep with you he loves you it's not the same thing in a guy's head and so here we have this this woman who is trapped in this situation and she Is continuing to try to be the best wife she can. She's trying to meet her husband's needs in every way that she can. She's in this incredibly awkward situation where she's competing for time and attention of her husband with her sister. So she can't even really hate this woman the way that Hagar and Sarah hated one another. They're both put in this terrible situation. And she's being used. And we need to understand there is a difference between being loved and being used. And she's being used. And it's just an ugly story. The whole story is a story full of pain. Leah is unloved. She's been humiliated. She's been used. All she wants is to be wanted. All she wants is to be loved. All she wants is to be recognized. All she wants is to be affirmed. She's trying to find her sense of significance. And she keeps having uh, boys thinking, you know, in this culture, this makes me significant. But he still won't love her. Rachel, on the other hand, is gorgeous, and barren. Gorgeous is really good when you're single. But when you're married in this culture, you have to be able to produce children. And she can't. And so she may be the pretty one, but she's suffering here too. And by the way, even Jacob has been hurt in this situation. He's deceived by his father-in-law. It cost him. 14 years of his life, he's caught up in this very messy family situation, all kidding aside. I cannot imagine what it would have been like, the tension of being married to two women who, by the way, are sisters. And he's getting older by the day, but he's working like a dog. And that blessing of God seems a million miles away to him. And we close chapter 29 and we go, what a lousy story. But well, my friends, God is not finished yet. He hasn't forgotten his promises. Leah feels unloved, but she is not unloved by God. He never lost sight of her, He never stopped working in her life. Her first son, Reuben, look, a son. Her second son, Simeon, means God hears. God heard her cry, she says. God has answered my prayer. God is going to help me get my husband's attention, but it doesn't happen. The third son is named Levi, Levi, and Levi means attached or attachment, and she says right out loud in the text here, she says, maybe now my husband will be attached to me. I've given him three sons. Maybe now when we walk together, he'll hold my hand. Maybe now when he's trying to figure out whose tent to go to each night, he'll come and sit with me on the porch and sip tea before bed. Maybe now he'll ask me how my day was. Maybe now he'll want to be with me. Three sons, no luck. And her fourth son is called Judah. She says, I've decided to praise the Lord. Judah means praise. You you think God forgot her? Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He put her in the genealogy of Jesus, the ugly one. God didn't forget her. She's finally figured out that her only sense of significance, her only validation, her only completion is going to come from God. And so she names her fourth son Praise. Listen, the love of another person is a wonderful thing. I hope all of us can experience it in our lives. But it pales in comparison to the love of a perfect God. That's where your significance lies. Not in a man, not in a woman, but in God alone. Jacob thought he, he needed Rachel. All he needed was Rachel, and then he could be fully satisfied. But he, too, lived a life of conflict and frustration and hopelessness until later on when he finally makes things right with God. Rachel thought... I've got Jacob, now if I could just give him some children, then I would have some honor, some value, some purpose, some worth, only she can't give him any children. And so what she has to do is look every day at her sister taking care of their kids. And every now and then, her sister says, Hey, um, Jacob and I have to go to this. Can you come babysit my kids? And she can't find any fulfillment She can't find any significance. My friends, the only place we can ever find our significance is in a personal relationship with God himself. Everybody else will let you down. If you have that relationship, you have all you need. And until you have that relationship, you will never know what you're missing. I was fascinated to hear this quote from Tom Brady, the football player. If you don't know, Tom Brady is generally considered the greatest quarterback, if not the greatest football player of all time. He has now won six Super Bowls, but at the time of this quote, he had only won three Super Bowls. He's married to Giselle Buncheon, arguably one of the most beautiful women in the history of the world. And He is rich beyond measure, and by the way, his wife is worth more than he is. Here was his quote. I've won three Super Bowl rings, I'm incredibly wealthy, and I wake up every morning next to a supermodel. Why do I still want more? And I have an answer. It's because every human being was designed with a god-shaped void in his heart. And God's the only one who fits. And we could try to shove other people into it and we get nothing but hurt. We try to shove material things into it, we get nothing but disappointed. We sh- we try to shove fame into it or experiences, none of it works. It all leaves us feeling like something is desperately wrong. And only God fits. Your relationship, your career, your money doesn't fit. You and I will never find significance outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. And once you find your significance in Christ, you will never need to seek it anywhere else. Isn't it a time that we look to Him for our completion? Isn't it a time that we said, I'm not really so worried about how I think I measure up on the comparison chart to other people in my beauty, in my personality, in my wealth, in my achievements, in my fame, or fill in the blank with whatever it is that you think is so important. Isn't it time that we laid that kind of stuff aside and we said, I actually believe that the God who created the universe loves me. That the God who created the universe says, I am a masterpiece. And that the God who created the universe has an unbelievable plan for my life. Isn't it a time that we look to him for acceptance? Isn't it a time that we look to him for significance? Jesus Christ alone can fill the void that is left in the human heart. And as we sang today, he will never let you down. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we come before you, um, every one of us with scars, every one of us knowing that we don't measure up by some standard, every one of us feeling like we have failed in some area or perhaps many, every one of us knowing that we're inadequate, We come to the only one who is adequate. We come to the only one who is enough. We come, Father, searching for our significance in you. And Father, we thank you that you have set the record straight when you said that you love every one of us so much that you would send Jesus to the cross to pay the price for us. God, help us find our worth in you. Help us find our value in you. Some of us, Father, find ourselves right now in situations, family situations, that are just painful. There's brokenness and bitterness and, and there's mistreatment and there's all of that kind of stuff. God, won't you just put your arms around everybody who's in that situation? Won't you just help us to find comfort in you and stop seeking that comfort somewhere else? And Father, won't you help us to know that when we're pleasing to you, we can be truly content. May we find that contentment in you alone.